And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. It's the Get Off My Lawn podcast for the week of February 28th, 2016, as we celebrate Peace Corps Week, the toughest job you'll ever love. On tonight's program, you'll hear your genial host, Kevin, say, Wassalamu alaikum e dostad. That is the Kazakh phrase for we're shaking, y'all. Before we kick into the show itself, we begin today with a few words from a few presidents of the United States of America. Peace Corps is really the idea of the American people. When I talked last fall about the idea of young American men and women going abroad to serve shoulder to shoulder with the citizens of newly emerging countries, a tremendous response went up from the schools and colleges of the United States. What is remarkable is that there is no salary for the members of the Peace Corps. They will go abroad and live on the same standard as people of other countries that they will work with them, devoting part of their lives to peace and to strengthening the ties that bind men together all over the globe. I've been a volunteer, but if you think I had a choice about being a volunteer, you should have known my mother. (laughs) Miss Lillian, as she was called by everyone, uh, had combined the skills she learned as a registered nurse, trained at home, with the humanity that she inherited from her father and uh, she dedicated her life to helping others. My mother was serving in the Peace Corps when she was 70 years old. And if you think I'm too old to be a volunteer, then uh, just look at my mother. And if you think 70 seems old, well, just look at me now. The willingness of all Americans, men and women, young and old, to serve in the Peace Corps, to serve in all parts of the world, to serve at little pay, do jobs that uh, most of them have never done before is one of the most encouraging manifestations of the American spirit that this country has seen in many years. The Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. I hope this spirit will grow and that hundreds of others of young Americans and older Americans will go overseas to show our best side to show how much we desire to live at peace. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. It's an adventure and it's a joy. It never seems like charity because we work alongside people that we are helping, forming instant communities. I can't think of a better way to promote understanding than what we're doing. Today our world is smaller and more interconnected than ever before. And it presents us with an extraordinary opportunity to connect with people in some of the most remote corners of the globe and show them that America is paying attention, that we care, and that we're here to help. That's what the Peace Corps is all about. Life as a Peace Corps volunteer isn't always easy, but for many Americans, it is a life-changing experience. 
one that offers a chance to live and work in communities around the world, tackling some of the most pressing challenges of our time. So if you're looking for a way to serve, think about joining more than 200,000 Americans who have worked as Peace Corps volunteers in more than 100 countries. You can make a difference, and together we can make this world a better place for all of us. I'm your announcer, Craig, and here's your genial host, Kevin. Thank you, Craig, and welcome, everybody, to another installment of the Get Off My Lawn podcast. Today, I want everybody on the lawn. Gather around. I want to talk about something today that is uh, one of the few things in life that I consider to be special. Uh, Back in 2002, I joined an organization known as the United States Peace Corps. I became a volunteer. Uh, They uh, assigned me to a location in Central Asia known as Kazakhstan. And from 2002 to 2003, I served as a Peace Corps volunteer teaching English in a city called Pavlodar. It's a city of roughly 300,000 people. It was described to me by the locals as a provincial town. Yes, I was 40 kilometers south of the city of Omsk, which is the southernmost Russian city in Siberia. I was, yes, just south of Siberia. So there you go. That was where I was assigned. It was a, it, it was a memorable experience, uh, something I will never forget, something, like, like I said, it's, it's one of few things that I actually take pride in in my life. It's something where I feel like I did good, where I learned a lot, where hopefully I taught a little, and it just is something that I wanted to commemorate because this is National Peace Corps Week. We are kicking it off. Uh, not officially, of course. It's not like I, I got, you know, banners and streamers and balloons and, you know, dancing girls, if only. But what I do have are a couple of Peace Corps volunteers from my host country of Kazakhstan. They served the same time that I did. And so I want to talk to them, catch up with them, get them to talk about their experience and uh, how that shaped their lives. Uh, I, I'm also going to talk to a musician from America, from Texas. And he is going to talk about collaborating with uh, a Kazakh musician with a song that he put out. You'll get to hear that song a little bit later on. We're going to start things off with the director of the United States Peace Corps, uh, Carrie hessler Radelit. Hopefully I pronounced that right. You'll hear me say that a lot. It, it's, one of those, it's one of those verbal quirks that I've developed over the years. I, I have a hard-to-pronounce last name. As a result, I try to make every effort to get other people's names correct. Uh, When you live overseas (laughs) and you live in a Russian-speaking country full of Kazakhstani people, uh, learning their names is actually quite a compliment to them. Um, Learning any aspect of their language is a compliment to them. In fact, when when we were sworn in as Peace Corps volunteers at the time, there were about 150 of us, if I remember right, 140 of us, and we all stood up on a stage in the city of Almaty, uh, the former capital of Kazakhstan, if you're playing along at home. Anyway, we're there in Almaty, and we're all getting sworn in, and, and many of the, well, all of the other Peace Corps volunteers were standing up, and they were saying in Russian, hello, my name is, and I am a Peace Corps volunteer. And so they would say, you know, Kevin uh, and that would be how they were sort of announcing themselves to be officially sworn in as Peace Corps volunteers. I stood up, and I give total credit to this, by the way, to our language and culture facilitator, a a woman named Amantai. I stood up and I did it in Kazakh. I said, Minan Atom Kevin. 
and I got a standing ovation. Everybody else got a smattering of applause, and I got a standing ovation. And all the other volunteers looked at me like I'd just, you know, punched their dog in the face. Like, oh, we didn't know we could do it in Kazakh. Well, I did it in Kazakh, and they loved me for it. And it's silly. It sounds silly, but if you're living overseas, hey, make an effort. Learn a couple words of the language. They will appreciate it. They will shake your hand. They will introduce you to their attractive women and their family. Oh, yeah, that happened a couple times. Uh... It, 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 just trust me on this. Learn the language. If you're going to go overseas, learn the language. Anyway, <laughs> we've already devolved. See, I'm trying to keep it. Anyway, here is, uh, like I said, I got to chat with the director of the Peace Corps just a couple days ago. Uh, she is, well, out promoting, you know, the, all, all the things that come with doing the Peace Corps. And so I wanted to talk to her to get sort of a, a base level uh, introductory what is the Peace Corps, what, how did it begin, where is it going, all of that stuff. And, and honestly, you will find no one on this planet more approachable than the people who work in the office of the Peace Corps. I'm not kidding. Uh, you call and you get a human being who will transfer you to another human being who will then try to help you out with whatever questions you have. I cannot say enough good things about the people in the D.C. office. Uh, if you have any questions about the Peace Corps that I can't answer, that the director can't answer, that the other volunteers you're going to hear from today can't answer, uh, give them a call. Uh, says, hit them up on social media. Just trust me on this. They're, they're, they're good people. Um, so with that said, after a lot of saying, here is uh, the director of the Peace Corps, Carrie hessler Rattlet, and she is, uh, yeah, she's talking to me by phone. Here she is now. All right, well, joining me right now via the wonder of the cellular telephone is the director of the Peace Corps. I have Carrie hessler Rattlet on the phone. Carrie, thank you for chatting with me for a couple minutes here today. I am thrilled to be talking to you. Well, I appreciate you taking the time, and I, I wanted to chat. I'm chatting with a couple of Peace Corps volunteers. I'm chatting with a couple of people from my host country where I served, and I thought, oh, let's let's see if the director will talk to me. And sure enough, you guys were the most approachable people I've encountered in the whole time I've been doing a podcast. So thank you very much. That's because we're the Peace Corps. Can I just say, first of all, thank you for your service in Kazakhstan? Oh, I appreciate that. It, it was an honor, it was fun, it was the experience of a lifetime, and that's kind of why I wanted to fulfill my third goal here and, and chat with people about it. So Fantastic. Uh, you served, before you were the director, you served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Samoa. Do I have that right? Yep, absolutely. Well, let's let's start I, there. What, uh, what, what led you to join the Peace Corps? Everybody seems to have a different answer to that question. Well, my answer is probably pretty unique in that I come from a Peace Corps family, and when I entered Peace Corps... In 1981, so now I'm telling you how old I am, um, my aunt and my grandparents had already served before me. Wow. So I was the first third-generation volunteer to serve, along, and I served along with my husband, Steve. Very And then, finally, my nephew served in Mozambique from 2007 to 2009, so we are the first four generations family. <laughs> well, that's awesome. That's that's a cool thing. That's uh so you kind of followed the family tree there and what uh Yeah. What 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 did you do there? I know, you know, we, we all picture the early days of the Peace Corps in the sixties as being, you know, people in the banana republic outfits, you know, wandering the beaches. <laughs> and then, you know, by the by the time I got to me in Central Asia they were looking for a lot more business and economic development volunteers. What was going on in the eighties in the Peace Corps? I was uh, uh, 
I was sent to be a TEFL volunteer, so teaching English as a foreign language. Um, I taught an all-girls secondary school. It was a Catholic school called Paul Six College in Leulumoinga, Samoa. You know, it's funny, when you imagine what you're going to do, I sort of imagine myself riding a horse on the beach, which <laughs> clearly never happened when yeah. say that. But anyway, um, my husband taught math and science, and I was supposed to teach English, but in reality, I taught English, history, geography, social studies, PE, and music, which is more or less anything that nobody else would teach. <laughs> um, I also did a library project. I, there was a, a room with a sort of collection of books and boxes, but very disorganized, so I helped to get that, you know, sort of usable and did some library programs and really part of my work. And then the other thing I did is I um, was part of a team that led a national disaster preparedness um, campaign to teach school children and teachers and the general public about what to do in the event of an earthquake, a hurricane, a flood, a tsunami, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that, I'm sure back then, especially, that was much-needed stuff. You know, and I have to say, as a teacher, my life was fairly structured, and um, my school was run by the Sisters of Mercy, and they are very structured, let me say. <laughs> so, you know, the sort of iconic view of Peace Corps volunteers kind of hanging around, not having much to do, was absolutely not the case where I was serving. Um, I don't think I've ever worked as hard as I did when I was a Peace Corps volunteer. I, you'll get no argument from me. I was I was assigned to one particular school, but I also uh, the, the there were a couple of other volunteers on site before I got there, and they had started a library resource center, so we helped run that. And then there was also a Turkish lyceum where we went and you know spoke a lot and did a lot of, of things with. So there was always something going on as as a Peace Corps volunteer. Um, I mentioned, uh, yeah, I mentioned briefly the third goal, obviously, again, as you're a return Peace Corps volunteer, part of what you're supposed to do is, is educate people both on the country where you served and the Peace Corps itself. But, uh, what are the first two goals for people who do not know, who are not in, into the Peace Corps as you and I are? Sure. Let me just start by saying we have a mission, which is to promote world peace and friendship, very easily accomplished, but incredibly important. And then our three goals, which have, by the way, remained the same for over 50 years, as had our mission. Um, our first goal is to provide trained men and women to countries around the world that are interested in our service. So it's a development goal to help build individual and institutional capacity at the last mile in the developing countries in which we work. Our second goal is to promote a better understanding of Americans and the nations we serve. And this is what you did every day. It's just your relationships that you have with your community, um, getting to know people. In many cases, you're the only American they've ever met or may ever met, meet, and so it's an opportunity to really show the true humanity of our people, and it's, I think, one of the most important things that we do. And then, of course, the third goal is to promote a better understanding of other cultures and other people back here in our country, and that's what you're doing, and we're very grateful. Oh, like I said, it just the, when I started doing this podcast about six months ago, I realized that even just in interviews with other people, I was talking about it a lot. Like my my thirty second story of how I joined the Peace Corps was I had worked in Hollywood and television production for about five years and got really burned out by that, and ultimately decided I needed to do something different. And someone suggested the Peace Corps as a joke and laughed it off. And I went and applied online that afternoon. So <laughs> good job. Was... You know, I just got back from California. I spent the last week in California and I met so many Californians with sort of the same story. It's wonderful. 
Yeah, there's I've, I've encountered a lot of people out here, too. And in fact, I remember when I was telling my friends, we were all uh, meeting up around Christmas time in a restaurant, and I was telling them that I, I was joining the Peace Corps, and someone from another table walked over to me, and she was in the 70s, a Peace Corps volunteer in Afghanistan. So, I mean, it just there's, oh, wow. there's always someone you're going to run into, you know, somewhere that's got some sort of a connection to it, which to me is kind of cool. Like you said, you've got four generations in your family. You can't, you know, you, you stumble, you're going to run into someone for certain. <laughs> I, I had also laughed when I came back. Uh, my, my first week back, I was medevaced actually out. And I was so I was stationed in D.C. for a couple of weeks while I was, you know, visiting doctors and all of that fun stuff. But I'm in I'm in a elevator. And someone is speaking Russian, and I looked over and I'd asked them in Russian, well, what floor do you want? Because I'd learned that language when I was overseas. And it turns out they were also from Kazakhstan. And they're like, we never expected to meet anyone in California, you know, in America who knew Kazakhstan. <laughs> and it just, Wow, that's amazing. And so, yeah, the, the, the people that you will run into and the stories that people have, have to tell. I will ask, uh, uh, do you have any particular sort of silly memories, moments, favorite moments of your time in Samoa as a volunteer? You know, my moments are really all about my time with my host family and like uh, virtually all volunteers we have a host we we get a host family and I spend a lot of time with our host family Losa and Diane were their names my host parents I mean and they had eight children when I arrived um nine by the time I left (laughs) and it's interesting because Losa and Diane were not that much older than us we were maybe they're like 10 years older than we were but they seemed so ancient because they had all these children running around but my um, happiest, happiest memories are really just being with them, you know, drinking tea, eating, you know, taro and fish together and, you know, shooting the breeze and getting to know about the Samoan culture and laughing a lot. It was wonderful. I mean, those are my happy moments. That's cool. That's good to hear. Well, tell me about... I mean, uh, I think the other happy moment is when, you know, you work really hard as a teacher, and this is something I'm sure you can relate to. You know, it's very hard in a country like Kazakhstan or Samoa where English is really not spoken much, but it's required for high school graduation. And and, and in Samoa, all of the high school curriculum is taught in English. So it's, it's essential to their academic success. And, you know, so when you see a kid that's working so hard that's just, just really putting a lot of effort and you see them being successful, that is just an amazing feeling. Yeah, and I did for several years when I came back from the Peace Corps. I was a teacher, so I tried to carry that carry that over in, into my uh, work life here as well. That's wonderful. Um, tell me about the uh, Peace Corps in the 21st century. What are, what are some new approaches you guys are doing? What are some different initiatives you're working on right now? We have um, worked very hard over the last five years to conduct the most extensive reform effort our agency has undertaken. I mean, we've literally looked at all of our... Um, various processes to make them more strategic, um, bolder, you know, more innovative and really relevant to, you know, our new realities. Even though our mission and goals have not changed, the world has changed a lot. And so we want to make sure we use all the tools and technologies and opportunities that are available to us. Probably one of the most important visible changes from the outside is the the changes to the application process, which now um, offers applicants the opportunity to apply to particular countries and um, programs, sector programs, ag, agriculture, education, health, environment, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that, ha- and then we've also made the application much simpler, faster, more streamlined, 
and we've made the process more transparent. So it's like more like, say, applying to college or applying to job. You know that if you apply by this application deadline, you're going to hear from the Peace Corps by, um, you know, three months later, and you'll be on the plane in nine months, let's say. <laughs> so there's just a lot more transparency and a lot more choice. And that has had an enormous impact on our application numbers. They have just soared. We had the highest uh, number of applications last year um, than we have had since 1975. Wow. Well, that is that is good to hear. Um, We've also been doing a lot of really cool stuff with social media, hence my conversation with you. But we've also got, you know, we've got all the social media channels. We've got a really dynamic and fabulous communications team. Because we have the world's best content. All of our volunteers are so amazing. I I know your time is limited here with me, so I won't uh, keep you too much longer here. Um, I know that my own particular program, Kazakhstan, closed a couple of years ago. How, how does a, is, is it that a country invites us to uh, become, you know, to, to, to welcome volunteers into their country, or do we ask them what, what is the process for that? Sure, great question, actually. We come at the invitation of our host nation, so we never enter a country without a letter from the president inviting us to come. And once we, and then we do an assessment and we determine whether or not it's an appropriate country for us. And we have a lot of criteria related to, you know, socioeconomic need, but also safety and security and medical care that's available. And um, we look at some of the U.S. government development priorities and whether or not we'll be working in alignment with that. But it really is the invitation from the host nation is our first step. Well, I, my, my only lament of all of this is I've been talking with several of my friends from my Peace Corps days is that uh, we, we would like to see Kazakhstan back in the Peace Corps somehow. What? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I know there were many reasons that led into the, the pullout a couple of years back. I was actually living, I, I went back in 2010, 2011, and taught English back in Kazakhstan privately a couple of years ago, so I got to know the last group of Kazakhstan volunteers. And, yeah. you know, to see them, as you mentioned, social media, to, to see them on social media reacting to having to leave, you know, and, and to, to see the reactions of several of their friends as they had to leave. I just I just wonder, what are the, what are the chances of, of getting back into countries, like even Russia, that pulled out back in 2001, 2002? It would be nice to see us back in there where, you know, if the message is peace, we certainly do need to spread some peace that direction. Yeah, no, you know, I agree. I mean, we'd have to have, again, a letter of invitation from those countries, again, yeah. um, because once we left, they would need to extend the invitation. But the other thing we really look at in, in this sector, Tavling to Kazakhstan, is socioeconomic status and where they are on the Human Development Index. And Kazakhstan and Russia are both higher on the Human Development Index than the vast majority of our nations. So there, and, you know, and then there's other things like the ease of, you know, working and the government commitment and what have you. But so, you know, all those things factor into a decision, a decision both to enter and to leave is incredibly complex and is very thoughtful. It is not done in the rash of a moment. It is really, really thoughtful based on a lot of conversations and a lot of data, frankly. Well, I thank you for taking the time to chat with us here, and and again, good, thank thank you, thank all the volunteers for the work that they are doing and continue to do. And if you ever need, you know, my cheesy little podcast to promote anything you guys are doing, just let me know. Well, we'd love to. And can I just say one thing that starting March, uh, actually starting February 29th, we're having Peace Corps Week, which really celebrates 
our annual anniversary, and this year we're 55 years old. Wow. Or should I say 55 years young? <laughs> there we go. We're not quite ready to qualify for Social Security yet, but we're getting there. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> well, thank you again. We just got a facelift. <laughs> yeah. <there you> go. <laughs> well, President Kennedy did a good thing back in his day, and it's nice to see that the tradition carries on. So, and through four yeah. generations in your family, as you pointed out, so that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your service. Really oh. appreciate it, Kevin. I hope we get to meet in person sometime. I hope so too. Let me know next time you're back in California. I'll I'll, I'll come stop by. Okay. Wonderful. All right. Well, you take care take of yourself. Care. Bye now. All right, so now you have a little bit of uh, the background, a little bit of the basics of what it is to be a Peace Corps volunteer. Uh, from a third-generation Peace Corps volunteer who's part of a four-generation Peace Corps family. That's kind of cool. Uh, next up is going to be another RPCV, and this is a gentleman who served with me in Kazakhstan, uh, and, and he is now a professor at Oregon State University. He also writes some short stories. Uh, for those of you that don't tune into this podcast regularly, it's its primary focus. What we tend to, uh, who we tend to interview more than anybody else, are writers, uh, creative people. And uh, Jeff does write short stories. He's got a book of uh, compiled short stories that that he's got, and we'll talk about that. And I'm actually uh, going to let him do a little reading of one of his short stories here today. But we're going to talk a little bit more about what we did in the Peace Corps, the times that we had, uh, you know, Jeff's experience. Each each of us had a different experience. Uh, Jeff found love. You know, Jeff met and married the woman of his dreams while serving as a volunteer in Kazakhstan. And uh, I, I met several women of my dreams. We didn't get married. <laughs> That's another story for another day. But uh, here's Jeff with some of his stories uh, and some of his writing. And just uh, check it out. Here we go. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am sitting here chatting live via Skype with Jeff. Am I going to pronounce your last name right, Fernside? You got it. I got it. No mispronunciation. I want to make sure it's all right here. All right, he... He is a fellow former, well, not, the word is RPCV now, a returned Peace Corps volunteer, also from Kazakhstan. How's it going, Jeff? Going great, Kevin. Good to see you again. Yeah, looking at you on Skype, it's the first time I've seen you face-to-face in coming on 13 years, I think, 10 or 12, something like that. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. You think so? Well, let's start with the basics here. As I told you, I think, in, in, in advance when I was asking you to do this, this is sort of a Peace Corps edition of the show, but the show is also focused on writers in general, and you are a writer, so I wanted to spotlight you a little bit here. How did uh, how did you decide to join the Peace Corps? What led to that? Wow. Uh, big question. Um, you know, it's hard to explain. The Peace Corps is something I had wanted to do for a long time. I, I like the idea of the service. I like the idea of helping people. I like the idea of seeing a new country, seeing different places, learning a new language. So it, it had been a goal of mine ever since I was a teenager of some age, um, but I wasn't able to make it happen. Um, you have to have your finances in place when Peace Corps make sure that you can't just run away and, this and is true. leave a mess behind you. And, uh, you know, so I have business to take care of. And, um, and I was working at Washington State University. It was it was a good job, and I was happy with it. But uh, I, I took a look around one day, and I thought to myself, "My God, uh, I'm in a position where I could potentially stay here for a while. And if I don't do Peace Corps, I might not get a chance to do it again for a long, long time." So in my early 30s, I 
decided I, I've got to do this thing I've been wanting to do for a long time. And finally did it. And you did it. And you were assigned to Kazakhstan, same as me. Did you request Central Asia or did you kind of leave it open? I did. Well, at, at the time I was teaching at Washington State and I, I wanted to stay in teaching and I wanted to stay in higher ed. And Peace Corps, as you know, uh, allows you to teach in higher ed, either in Central Asia or in Eastern Europe. And I did some research, and for whatever reason, I, I was drawn to Central Asia. As you know, in Peace Corps, they, they, they don't uh, let you choose your country, you just right. choose your region. But um, something about Central Asia was calling to me, and, and so that was the region I picked, and, and then ended up in Kazakhstan. Well, tell people, as you, as I'm sure you know, not everybody knows about Kazakhstan, so give people a quick sort of 30-second, one-minute synopsis of what it was like there. <laughs> okay, the quickest version is, is it's not like in Borat. No, really? <laughs> yeah, 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 surprisingly <laughs> enough. Um, big country, geographically ninth largest in the world, but only roughly 18 million citizens, so it's a sparsely inhabited country. Beautiful, tall, 20,000-foot mountains, desert steppe, ancient cities, modern cities, former Soviet country, um, former indigenous nomadic culture, fascinating people, very friendly. Some of the friendliest people in the world, I think. No doubt. A lot of it. No and, doubt. Uh, what can I say? I ended up meeting my wife there. I, absolutely the last thing I had ever expected to do when I entered Peace Corps. That, you know, there's a couple of us, I think, that left and, and uh, left with love. They, two you or know. three or four, yeah. yeah. Chaz uh, Martin, yeah. who is now in a consular position in Almaty. Back in Almaty with his family, yeah, yeah, which is cool. Yeah. So let's see. So you went from Kazakhstan back to the U.S. You are back to teaching and writing at the same time. Yes. Um, I have an MFA, uh, Master of Fine Arts in, in Creative Writing. Uh, I, I got that actually before I went into to Peace Corps. So I, I knew I wanted to be a writer. And um, Peace Corps ended up giving me some great ideas for stories. I, I've certainly written a lot about that. Um, I have a, a novel I'm working on that's actually set in Kazakhstan. Very cool. Uh, have you been back since you left the Peace Corps? Now that I mean, you've got a, a wife, so one time. Well, I ended up staying for four years. Okay. Um, I did my two years in Peace Corps, and I stayed for another two, and then uh, came back to the states, as, as obviously because I'm here. But uh, uh, my wife and I have been able to get back one time. It, it, as you know, it's it's very far. It's uh, <laughs> very yes, expensive. Yes. <laughs> and uh, uh, my wife is from Shimkent, the city that uh, I did my service in, and to get there is is literally. By plane, by sitting in airports, by train, once you get to Kazakhstan, you still have to take the overnight train to Shimkent. You're, you're three days there, and you're three days back. Yeah. So that's six days just traveling. So it, it's not an easy trip, and uh, we've made it once. It was, it was fascinating. It was great to be back, and we hope to get back soon. Yeah, I went back to teach privately in 2011, 2010, 2011. Yes. I remember that. Yeah, and it's a different city than where I was, you know, originally in the Peace Corps. It was in Karaganda, uh, which is a coal mining town, yep. which is it, very, very, it was interesting to see, you know, charcoal black snow in the middle of winter because of how bad <laughs> the air is. And, you know, having grown up in Southern California with horrible smog and everything else, I can state for a fact the EPA is a wonderful thing. Because Karagana, no smog restrictions, no air quality checks. It oh, was, no. it was. Safety is out the window. Yeah. yeah you could eat the air. It was so thick some days. And, and that was sort of my one abiding memory of the difference between where I was versus when I was in the Peace Corps. I was in Pavlodar, which was the city on a riverbank. 
on the Irtish River. It was beautiful. It was, you know, yeah. clean. Garaganda had some beauty to it, but not so clean. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, but, that's the great thing about uh, traveling to a foreign country, and one is different from the U.S. is Kazakhstan, is you're going to see something you've never seen before, usually, oh, I'd say every day. Absolutely. It's going to be something different. Absolutely, and you're going to, you know, I said one of the things that always made me laugh when I was in the Peace Corps was you can sort of explain away any personal idiosyncrasies when you're overseas. They just sort of say, oh, he's just the silly American. That's a, you know, it's that's it's a nice that you know if 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 I'm doing something that you know in the U.S. would get me you know weird looks over there, they're like Americans do odd things. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I, it was kind of your free pass. You're exactly, exactly, and you know, and, and I freely admit and have stated so publicly on the podcast, I I was a much you know louder mouth back then, and I was much more boisterous, and I didn't hold back much. I, I one of my abiding memories of you was at the all-volunteer conference. I do not know if you remember this moment, but you were leading a, a workshop on something, mm -hmm. and I wouldn't shut the hell up. <laughs> yeah, back then, you didn't, but you know what? We all put up with it because you were really damn funny. Well, thank you. But, <laughs> so, see, but, but what I remember about you is you had the most politically correct way of telling me to shut the hell up that I've ever heard. As you looked at me and you said to the kind of the group, you're like, the thing I like about Kevin is he's got no inner monologue. What he thinks comes right out of his mouth, whether we want it or not. <laughs> I thought, that's a... It's a very it's a very honest reaction of saying, God, Kevin won't shut up. I want to do what I'm here to do, and he won't shut up. <laughs> it's, oh, it's all good. Well, I asked you to uh, have something, uh, one of your short stories, or even a segment of something that you've written to uh, share with my audience. Are you in a position to do that at this time here? I am. Uh, Excellent. Let me uh, pull it up here. So tell me what you're, uh, you're going to read to us and tell me what inspired you, if there was any Peace Corps inspiration or not. Uh, well, for this, this, I wanted to do something short. Sure. We, we don't have a lot of time. And uh, I wanted to do something complete. Uh, so it's a it's a piece of what you call flash fiction, um, just a, a little uh, two-and-a-half-page two story. And it's the, uh, the opening to my uh, new collection that's coming out here in about a month. What's it called? And the collection is called Making Love While Levitating Three Feet in the Air. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Hope it's attention grab. Yes, that's the, that's the, I, you got my interest. <laughs> yeah, so you can, you can find it on Amazon. It's, it's, it's up for pre-sale, and we're already taking orders. And uh, so this is the opening story to the collection. And uh, it's not, uh, it's, it's not uh, based on anything um, that happened to me in Kazakhstan, um, that's the second collection I'm working on. Um, I do have some stories I've written. But this does have a, a sort of a Cold War connection, so I thought it was appropriate. Cool. And well. it's uh, set in the early 70s. Uh, this is not an autobiographical story, but uh, it certainly was set in a time that I remember well. So uh, I'll just go ahead and read it. It's called Nuclear Tough Skins. Go for it. My dad built a bomb shelter in our backyard the year I was born between the Berlin Wall and the Cuban Missile Crisis. But it soon became a, a neglected cave of concrete and canned peaches, over which my best friend Johnny Lynn and I ran barefoot and ice cream sticky on hot summer days, or stalked fireflies at night, or threw our heads back and stalked stars, my dad standing over us, tracing the flight of what we couldn't see, saying, 
They're up there, boys, looking down on us as we speak. That's why it's a race to the moon. Everything's a race. Then muttering, godless heathens, he'd light a Salem and suddenly say, wave to them high. And we'd all wave except Johnny Lynn, who'd give the Reds the bird, though you couldn't tell. He was so tan and his gesture just part of the night. My arms were tanned too, but my legs were as pale as the powdered milk my mom would sneak from our cave when we ran out of hole, because no one in our family wore shorts. It wasn't allowed. Something in the Bible supported this, Sodom and Gomorrah, I was led to believe. But Johnny Lynn went to the same church as we did and was as dark as an Indian from the thighs down. My parents never said he was going to hell, though I knew he swore and gave the Reds the bird, and old Mr. Franklin, too, at the five and dime. Not because I ever saw it, but because my friend said so. I wanted Indian thighs and grass-stained knees, but was afraid I'd be turned into a pillar of salt or destroyed by fire. Not even Armstrong's one small step could change my fear. It took the three channels in our TV, Mark Spitz and his seven golds, the forbidden rock on my transistor radio, and Skylab, which I imagined was manned by Major Tom, and by the summer I was 12, I couldn't wait to take my protein pills and put my helmet on. So one day I cut up a brand new pair of Tough Skins jeans. It wasn't easy, because new was when they were best, like Daycron armor. But I figured if you could make a trampoline out of them, then they would make good shorts. The only thing is, I couldn't cut them with my school scissors or even my scout knife. I had to sneak my mom's sewing scissors out of her basket. And I still had a hard time, especially with the reinforced knees. But when I was finished, they were even cooler than Johnny Lynn's. And for one glorious afternoon, I ran with the freedom of one who lived free, who felt the heat of sunburned shin bones, yet also impossible light and air rustling through downy hair like a breeze through curtains before a thunderstorm, ran as an equal with my friend. We danced and taunted the sky where we knew Salute lay hidden godless behind clouds, Look at, look, Reds, look at us, see how we live in America. Until my mom heard and chased Johnny Lynn away before scolding me inside and stripping me to my briefs, fretting about what to do with my sin. She didn't tell me to wait until my father got home like she usually did, but instead scolded and fretted, and then finally made me dig a hole in the garden where she deposited my new tough skin shorts like they were a full diaper, covered them up and said not to tell my father unless I wanted a red bottom. They're buried there, I guarantee it. Have outlasted Vietnam, the Olympic boycott, Cold War, Star Wars. They were probably just getting broken in when the Berlin Wall fell. Someday somebody will dig them up, long after we finished the arms race and visited Mars, long after Perestroika, the Second Coming, the 2000 year reign of the Prince of Peace, my mom still says, is right around the corner. <laughs> Very nice, some good imagery in that. I, 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 I do remember the Tough Skins well. Oh, those commercials were great. Well, I, I come from the hand-me-down era. I was the youngest of four, and so I would get the hand-me-down Tough Skins where my mom would do, like, the iron-on patches over the knees, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, they were probably just getting broken in. <laughs> yeah. Four, three, three kids before you. <laughs> no question about it. So you've got the book going on. You're teaching. You told me before we started recording here you're at Oregon State right now. You're a Mighty Mighty Beaver. I'm a mighty beaver. Yes. That's right. I said to you before, my, my brother was a beaver for one year. I, I do remember his stories of when the uh, beavers played the uh, Minnesota Gamecocks. That was always a, uh, <laughs> a 
It's a good game. So I don't do a lot of sports jokes on the show. I don't get to sneak that in anywhere else. So I had to okay, try to good. had to try to tag. Well, you know, I, I, I am quite excited to be here at OSU. I've, I've been doing some online teaching. First time I've ever done that. I, I hadn't done that before. And um, they gave me an opportunity to do a, a, a an Asian lit class. And so I'm focusing on authors from the Silk Road. Uh, we've got uh, Chingis Aitmaitov. You might remember him. He uh, was a Kyrgyz author. And uh, he has a book set in uh, Kazakhstan that we're reading in class. We've got a, a book set in Turkmenistan. We've got a book by an Uzbek author. So th this is really fun for me to be able to teach this class. That's very cool. I also saw in the news a week or two ago they've got – it was billed as a, a Kazakh Game of Thrones in production, but they have an epic <laughs> story, a, a, a telenovela, if you will, of, of life and the history of the steppe that I'm – Hoping they'll do, I, I doubt we'll see it air in the United States, but I'm hoping we'll get a U.S. subtitled version at some point because looks like they're putting a lot of effort into it. We've got Mongol. We've got Nomad. Yeah, yeah. We've got some, some cool films that have come out of Kazakhstan. They've got a, a great film industry, actually. So it uh, should be interesting. Yeah. So uh, tell me anything else that you want to include about the Peace Corps. What should people know about it that they don't? What do people know about it that they don't? Um, well, I don't know what people know or don't know. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I, I think there's a, a perception that uh, Peace Corps volunteers are idealist, and I would say that's probably a correct perception. Probably. There's, there's usually something motivating the decision to join. There is, you know, because there's a lot of things you can do with your life, and taking two years out to, you know, we obviously didn't starve or anything, but you're not making the money you can make if you stay in the States, and, and I think you have to have something of an idealist in you, and, and you know, I'm proud of that. Uh, I, I, I believe that the work we did was good. I know that uh, we were there. In fact, we were the, in the first group uh, after 9-11, and there was mm -hmm. a lot of tension in the world. And, you know, we were, a lot of us, uh, probably you found this out, we, we were the first Americans a lot of the people in our villages have, had ever seen. And um, we were ambassadors, really, in a way, for America. And, um, you know, I always took that kind of seriously, and I, I was proud of the fact that... Um, the people there got a chance to see Americans doing good things. Doing something different, the good yeah. side of what we can bring to, to other countries. And um, seeing that we're good people and, and inviting the, us into their homes. And, and uh, you know, now that I'm here, I'm, I'm doing my best to, to fulfill Peace Corps' third goal, which is to tell people about Kazakhstan and, and what an interesting country it is and, and how the people there are. And... and uh, you know, it just makes the world smaller, and I think that's a yeah. good thing. They're the Muslims that aren't talked about on the news, is kind of how I, I refer right. to people. And I, you know, you mentioned you mentioned September 11th, and you mentioned you know how how good the people are. Um, we had pretty much just moved to site what a month or so before September 11th. I think was when we we'd finished our, our training. Right. And so I was in a block of flats. I didn't know anybody, you know, locally at all, really, except for, you know, my, my handler, as it were, and a couple of people at the school. But there was a knock on my door on September 11th in my apartment, and I open it up, and it's basically the neighborhood. And they all yeah. show up and basically are telling me, hey, we got your back today. Yes. Which was awesome. You know, I still get emotional thinking about that because, I mean, this is, these are people that don't know me from Adam. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but they're taking the time out of their day to come up and just say, hey, we're here, you know, whatever you need. Uh, some of the teachers in my school did the same thing. And, and uh, you know, and, and they, it, it is a Muslim country, but it's not, they're, they're not radical. Right. And it just goes to show there's such a wide range. And, right. 
And, you know, the, Central Asia always had the moderating influence of Sufism. You know, Sufi missionaries brought Islam to the region in the first place. And, and uh, you know, so it's always been a tolerant version of Islam. And, and you know, the Soviet Union couldn't even scrub that away. And um, the people there are good. And, and I do wish more Americans understood that that the people there represent the majority of, of, of what people in that part of the world are like. They're not the extremists. Yeah. There's a reason we call them extremists. It's because they're the minority. They're the fringe, they're the extreme, yeah. You know? well, I think that's probably a good place to leave it, folks. Please go on Amazon and buy his book. What is the name of it again? It's a good name. Making Love While Levitating Three Feet in the Air. There we and go. Other Stories of Flight. <laughs> So, fellow RPCV, fellow Kaz11, Jeff Fernside, thank you so much for chatting with me this afternoon. Kevin, it's great to see you again. Yeah. All right, so that was Jeff Fernside, and uh, that you know, like I said, this is a part of my third goal. Uh, those of us that are Peace Corps volunteers, when we're done serving overseas, we're not technically done. Uh, we, there, there's a lot of letters in any government bureaucracy, you know, FBI, CIA, NSA, etc., Peace Corps is no exception. When you are a Peace Corps volunteer, that's a PCV. When you have finished your service overseas and come back home, you become a returned Peace Corps volunteer or RPCV. And as an RPCV, you are still responsible. Uh, it's part of the oath that you took to tell people about the country where you served and the experiences that you had. You know, part of promoting peace is is both sides. You know, not only are you supposed to share about life in America with people who live overseas. But you're also supposed to take something back from that host country. You know, take take back some memories, some experiences, some friendships, some relationships. And again, that's something that, that I took pride in doing whenever I could. And now that I got a podcast, I'm trying to do the same thing here. That in mind, we talked to Jeff, and that in mind, we are going to talk to another RPCV. Uh, Tony Lasvardi is is another friend of mine, another Kazakhstani RPCV. We started at the same time, and uh, his story different than mine, different than Jeff's, different than the Peace Corps directors. Uh, you know, we all came at it from different directions. We all ended up in an unusual place. And here's Tony to tell you about what's, what, you know, what, what led him to the Peace Corps and, and a lot of other silly stories that probably we shouldn't have talked about, but we did anyway, because that's what I do. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I have yet another RPCV on the line via Skype. I have Tony Lasvardi with me here, joining me from... Where are you joining me from, Tony? Uh, I'm in Boston right now. You're in Boston, and how's things in Boston? Uh, pretty good. Uh, as I said, Tony is a is, is a fellow Peace Corps volunteer from my Kazakhstan days. And, uh, Tony, what led you to join the Peace Corps? That was a decision that... That answer seems to be different for everybody I've talked to. Well, I was thinking about it today, and I was... I think it's maybe about half um, sort of wanting to see uh, exotic parts of the world and um, half, uh, you know, wanting to help, uh, help people in need, I guess, Um you know, the year that we joined, it was I was finishing up college, and uh, I joined right after college. And um, you know, September 11th had happened the year before, and so uh, I mean, I think there was a, you know a, a sense of wanting to uh, to contribute to uh, you know to help help serve our country and uh, do so in a way that would contribute to peace in the world in some way. Um, 
and uh, and I like to travel. So there you go. The uh, the the contributing thing. How, what, what did you end up doing there? What was your official title, and where did you go, and who did you see, and all that? Well, I was in in Sarkand, Kazakhstan, and I was an English teacher at a teaching college. So um, <clears throat> I had you know students who were um, eighteen, nineteen years old and who were most of them were preparing to be teachers to be english teachers and uh so i uh you know had a gr- great time uh teaching them i did conversational sorts of stuff mostly and uh, sarkand is it's a pretty remote uh city the population was about 15,000 but i was when i was there i was maybe you know the second or third american ever to go there um so i it was you know i was sort of an exotic uh <laughs> exotic resident um and uh, it's it's a beautiful place kind of uh near the chinese border in south uh eastern kazakhstan and uh one of the few places in kazakhstan where you can see uh, mountains. They're quite a, uh, you know, Kazakhstan is mostly steppe, mostly yes, pretty is. flat, but, but, uh, Sarkand is, is pretty and, uh, you've got some, some attractive mountains and things there too. So it was a good place to be. That's very cool. Um, what, uh, what, yeah, do you have any sort of vivid memories of, of the Peace Corps days? Anything stand out as either good or bad or funny or sad? I was thinking about it and, you know, the one image came to mind, it's just sort of a random thing, but, uh, I think my, my, maybe my second year there, I don't remember, it was my birthday, and um, Rosa, Rosa Rahimbaevna, who was my counterpart, so the, the teacher that they pair us with, sure. um, you know, to kind of, she was to, trying to show me around and uh, help, help me out with things. Um, we would uh, go over to uh, a friend of hers house, um, it was a, a, a local doctor and a, a real character. And for my birthday, she had thought she had arranged um, to have sort of a uh, a, a sled ride. Um, <laughs> so a sled that was dragged by horses. Nice. And um, there were a couple of other volunteers who came as well, Peace Corps volunteers who were there for my birthday. And so my memory is of a us all piled onto this sled, um, going through the the snow in the middle of the night. My my birthday's in January, so it was um, it was cold outside, and uh, there we were uh, going in this uh, in this horse drawn sled all around uh, Sarkhan. So. Hey, hey, the rules are you're not allowed to drive a car. Everything else is fair game in the peace. Right. <laughs> I was on. I was sort of underneath. The sled was definitely not big enough for all of us, right. so I was at the very bottom, being <laughs> being crushed um, through the whole ride. I don't think I took the picture. Someone sent me a picture from one of their sites of a uh, mother pulling her child, but instead of a stroller, she basically duct taped the kid to some sort of a sled type concoction. I was just sort of pulling the kid around that way. And it's like, like, well, it got the kid there, you know, that's really all that mattered. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, not everything was up to OSHA standards. No, no, not, not even a little bit. I liked there were, they were in my town in, in Pavlodar, there were these women that would come out on the really bad icy days and it looked like they were de-icing the road, but really what they were doing was polishing it to a nice healthy sheen. <laughs> Which was great for the cars that would then go skidding past. 
Right. Uh, you know, and I never quite understood what they thought they were doing. And if they, you know, they, they all wore the little orange vest. So in theory, someone hired them to cause damage and devastation. But <laughs> Maybe it was one of those things where you're supposed to pay them not to. Right. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I just, I, that, they always made me laugh. I'd see them do it and I would sit there and think, I wish I knew enough Russian to ask them why they were doing that and get an answer I would understand. But it, I, I can, I can remember another time where I was walking home and it was night and, you know, I was walking along the very side of the road and I was with a few other people and I was on the edge and all of the sudden um, I was like at their knee height, looking at them at knee height and my feet were wet and I realized I had just fallen into a ditch that the road had <laughs> so, sort of gotten suddenly narrower. <laughs> There weren't, you know, there weren't street lights or anything oh, like yeah. that, and I had just fallen entirely <laughs> upright into a ditch. Well, Pavlodar was right on the step. You know, there were no mountains or anything to block the winds that would come by, and mm. there were there were times in the winter when we'd be standing on street corners, and a wind would go, and it we'd we'd cross the street through no power of our own. We were crossing the street. Huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was always weird, weird sort of experience the, those moments there. Um, tell me about your interactions with some of the Kazakhstani people. Part of our lovely third goal is to talk about the people of Kazakhstan and what they were like. Tell me about them a little bit. I mean, I had I was sort of a celebrity in town, so people were very curious and. Um, you know, I remember uh, that I'm thinking of my birthday for whatever reason, but uh, people who I didn't know would come up and wish me a happy birthday because somehow they had they heard <laughs> that it was the American, uh, the American's birthday. Um, it, yeah, I mean, people were very, they were very curious, um, and uh, I really enjoyed the the students that I taught. Um, you know, they uh, they. You know, there's an energy there with the students, and um, they they're at the point where they you know are sort of open to new ideas and things, and um, you know really want to share their life, uh, their lives with 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 me as well. And uh, yeah, so that that was a lot of fun. Um, I can remember, another, you know, another thing st- stands out is they would always have these. Um, these shows for every holiday and spectacle yeah exactly yes <laughs> um, and um I mean, i just remember going to those and the you know the students performing and things and um it was fun you know i realized after a certain point that all of the holidays sort of blend together yes um, I always yeah. I always thought that in addition to the holidays, because they always had day of, you know, day of the man, day of the right. whatever, and then they yeah. always had, I always called it day of the hangover, because the next day, nothing was open. <laughs> you know, you could walk down the busiest of intersections, and there'd be nobody out there, because, yeah, they, 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 they knew how to have a good time. <laughs> right, yes, uh-huh, yeah. I mean, it was very, it's very social in a way. Yeah. That, um, you know, that American life, modern American life isn't in the sense that, you know, people on those holidays and things will just hang out, um, you know, eating these meals that go on and on and on. Oh, yeah. 
um, and uh, ne- <laughs> never end, no matter how tired you are. Yep, and um, as soon as one toast finishes, which is after an hour and a half, another toast will begin almost instantly after. So Right, yep, exactly. So another round. Yeah. <laughs> My one stereotype that I always had to sort of debunk with people is, you know, there is the old Russian stereotype of Russians drink or whatever else, and it's true that they do, but as you said, when there's a party, they've got the whole Dasterhan thing happening. They've got a whole big spread of food, you know, and all these other things going on. In addition to having alcohol on the table, there's, you know, a seven-course meal waiting for you. Uh-huh. You know, to help yeah. sort of cushion the blow a little bit. It's, it's every form of wretched excess. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other thing I loved was the uh, the banya as well. Oh uh, yes. Tell tell people about the banya if they if they are not familiar with the concern of people that that I be you know and it's something that I am not used to doing. I mean, it's a sauna essentially. Sure. Um, but that's how people wash there, um, and uh, so they were very concerned that I'd be able to banya. And so I would go over to different people's, you know, they it would invite me to their house to use their banya, and then afterwards we would have tea and uh, either, you know, one of these full seven-course meals, <laughs> or um, even the tea itself would be. A, oh yeah, you never you never sip. just got tea. You got all right. Stuff. Yeah, you'd be full afterwards. So. <laughs> But it was fun. It was a good way to get to know people and to, you know, to talk to them. And I remember the, the maintenance guy at our, uh, he was the night guard at our, um, at the college where I worked. And he was a really friendly fellow. And so I went over to his house a few times to use the banya. And he was showing me um, photos of when he was in the Russian military, mm. um, which was just fascinating. I, the Soviet military sure. at that point. Um and uh, yeah, so it was just fascinating to uh, to see behind the iron curtain. From, <laughs> from, from did, the, did you ever get any of the beatings in the banyo with the different branches and stuff that they would have? A few times, <laughs> yeah. which is again something else you try to explain to someone in the U.S. and they're like, "Ah, uh, do people do what now?" <laughs> <laughs> then, you, then you beat yourself with birch branches. Yeah, yeah, you know, you beat yourself, others beat you, you beat others. It's just what happens when you're <laughs> naked in a room full of men. You know, what, what, what? Why do you look at me like that? Stop looking at me like right. that. It's... Yes, yes. It... Uh, the line that I remember in that regard is, um, roll over and cover your eggs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there, there's a quote of the day. <laughs> Oh man! Well, transitioning from your uh, days as a Peace Corps volunteer, you have been—you've uh, you, chosen a very different vocation than well than me. That, that, that <laughs> what, well, what, what have you been up to the last ten years? I am now uh, a Jesuit, and I'm studying for uh, ordination to the priesthood, um, which will happen, uh, God willing, in uh, a little less than a year and a half now. Um, but uh, when I came back from the Peace Corps, I spent two years working at St. John's University in Minnesota and uh, worked with volunteer programs there as well. And um, then uh, realized that God was calling me to uh, to be a priest and to, to be a Jesuit. And Jesuit formation is, uh, is very long, so it's now been basically... A, uh, a decade <laughs> yeah. that I've been in training. You had blogged uh, about it pretty extensively for a while there, and it was it was, point, it was an interesting blog. Yeah, um, and um, I mean, in a lot of ways, there's 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 a lot of the same sorts of things that drew me to the Peace Corps. I think um, you know drew me to the Jesuits that uh, 
certainly, uh, you know, the, the desire there to help people and, you know, to serve. Um, in some ways, obviously, there's a spiritual dimension that, uh, it, it, you know, drew me to the Jesuits that wasn't there in the Peace Corps. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a sense of adventure in the Jesuits as well um, as part of my training. Uh, I spent a summer in uh, northeast India, again, very, very remote uh remote mountainous uh, region where you felt like you were in the middle of an Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> and, uh, and then I spent three years in the, uh, on the Rosebud Indian Reservation in South Dakota, um, which uh, actually the geography is very similar to most of Kazakhstan there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, and I would, you know, in my Jesuit community, I would say things from time to time about, oh, you know, this sort of reminds me of, uh, of Kazakhstan. Or it's you know this is just like we did it in Kazakhstan and you know they would say well you know you don't hear that every day. Yeah. <laughs> now one of the things you did during your training, uh, elite, you know, that you had blogged about, and again I don't know if that's a traditional part of training, but it was something that fascinated me was they they dropped you in a place and you had to find your way back home with basically the clothes on your back. Right. Yeah. Um, that's part of our the, the first uh, period of um, of Jesuit formation, the novitiate. Um, it's a we call it the pilgrimage experiment, and um, it goes back to Saint Ignatius in the uh, 1500s. Um, but uh, we were given thirty five dollars and a month's time to go on a pilgrimage, um, and uh, it's an exercise basically in you know in learning to trust in God that he, <laughs> he'll in fact take care of you, um, and learning to distance yourself from. Uh, you know, the things that we tend to be dependent upon, um, like credit cards and things like <laughs> that. And there were many times where I missed having a credit card. I'm sure. You know, this, I would, <laughs> uh, this would be so much easier. Um, but I went from St. Paul, Minnesota to um, Mexico City to visit the, uh, the Basilica there of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And, um, yeah, I started out with, uh, with a bus ticket that got me as far as Oklahoma City and then $35. And, um, it, yeah, it was great. Um, I, uh, you know, met some great people right off the bat in Oklahoma City that, um, uh, this, uh, a deacon and his wife, and, um, they paid for my trip then the rest of the way down to Mexico City. And the, the deacon's wife said, uh, hey, I'm a, I want you to call your mother just to let her know that you're all right. So, um, <laughs> good looking out. <laughs> well, that's so. cool. I, you know, I just I, I I am impressed with some of the people that I've talked to, including yourself, that have just they've taken the concept of service and things like that. You know, like you said, this time around you're doing it on a much more faith based you know mindset. But it certainly it, it it relates to your Peace Corps experience. At least I think it does. Mm -hmm. Anything you would want to tell people about the Peace Corps or about Kazakhstan that you think they would not know or should know? You know, I, th I the Peace Corps. There's such a diversity of experiences that people have. Um, you know, that continues to impress me. Um, and you know, people who are interested in the Peace Corps will ask questions and say, you know, was it like this or was it like that? Yeah. And you know, I can think of other pe think of other people even within Kazakhstan who had a very different uh, experience than oh, I did. Um, but uh, 
Yeah, I mean, it's an adventure. I, I liked it. I'm, uh, I'm still up for adventure, I think. So. <laughs> it sounds like it. Well, I thank you uh, very, very much for taking a couple of minutes out of, out of your day to talk to me here. And I think it's kind of cool that, uh, like I said, I, I, wish you, I wish you Godspeed on your, your quest. We'll, we'll call you Father Tony when it happens. <laughs> yep, soon enough. It's, uh, we're getting to the end of the decade. So. Uh, well, there you go. Well, that's, that's, like I said, that's very cool. Well, thanks for chatting with me, Tony. All right. It's good to, uh, good to be in touch, good to reminisce a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah. All, all the best to you. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Tony. And if you're unfamiliar with uh, what it is to be going through the process that he's been going through, uh, do some research. Uh, I'm telling you, being being a uh, you know training to be a Jesuit priest, it's not an easy undertaking. It requires a, a deep level of commitment, a deep level of faith, and, and I respect Tony very much for the process that he's going to. And as you listen to him talking, he's the real deal. You know, he's just a guy uh, who means well, who's trying to serve in any way that he can, and I respect him for that, and I wish him well. Um, next up, we're going to shift gears. And we're going to talk to a musician. Uh, we're going to talk to a cellist. We're going to talk to a rock cellist. And for those of you going, rock cello? Oh, yeah. It's a thing. It's a thing, believe me. And uh, the guy we're going to talk to is Ivan Trevino. Uh, he's uh, part of a group called Break of Reality. Break of Reality is a cello rock group. If you Google them, if you check them out on the, on the tube of you or the Book of Face, uh, you're going to see a lot of things come up. They're probably most known for an all-cello version of the Game of Thrones theme, but uh, they've done a lot of other songs as well and, and a lot of unique arrangements of some fairly popular and fairly famous songs. Uh, but uh, one of the things that they did recently was went to Kazakhstan, the country where I served again as a Peace Corps volunteer, and met up and collaborated with a Kazakhstani musician, Kazakhstani singer-songwriter, uh, by the name of Golomjan Maldanazar. I told you I have to work on my pronunciation of names. Believe me, you live overseas, you'll have to improve on that skill. Anyway, they work together on a song, and, and it's a really cool song. Uh, we're going to play it for you uh, in just a bit, but before we do... I want to uh, let you listen to, uh, you know, to, to, to one of the guys that put it together as he talks about not only just you know, music and what he does, but Kazakhstan. It's a unique place, and if you've not been, which statistically speaking, you haven't been, uh, it's worth checking out at least in terms of, well, it's worth giving this a listen because, believe me, it's, it's a place unlike any other. So let's uh, hear a little bit from uh, Ivan Trevino now. All right, we are joined now by uh, Yvonne. See, I just said it wrong, didn't I? <laughs> See, I always ask people now in advance how to pronounce their name, and then I get it wrong. We are joined now by Ivan Trevino, who is a member of the cello rock group Break of Reality. If you have not heard of them, you're clearly not a Game of Thrones fan, because all of my Game of Thrones friends have shared their theme. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it's that's it's all over social media. I think you've had, what, 10 million views on that one on YouTube? Yeah, 10 million views uh, just recently on YouTube. Yeah, and it's it's popular, and your your group has a definite, you know, distinct sound. There's there's kind of a group of, I don't even want to call you YouTube artists because it sounds almost like derogatory, but there's a group of people that really have utilized social media and are finding success that way, and you're certainly, you know, among them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially for like international audiences, um, you know, we don't really have a way to to travel a ton and connect with those people, but they find us online 
Um, and then eventually when we do get to travel, they show up because they know our band because, you know, our YouTube channel. Yeah, it's you know, it, among the other things that social media does is it really is a nice promotional tool for indie artists such as yourself. So That's true. And, and as I told you in advance when I asked to interview you, you know, I want to talk about your group a little bit and how you came to be and, and you know, why cellos. I'm sure you've had that question once or twice already in your life. But I, I also wanted to talk this issue of, of, of the podcast is devoted to some time that I spent in the Peace Corps serving in Kazakhstan. You actually recorded a song with a gentleman from Kazakhstan, uh, Gollum Jean. Moldan, Moldanazar, I believe, if I if I remember my Kazakh pronunciation right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yep. And and what? How did you pair yourself up with Galim? Uh, well, um, we met Gollum while we were touring Kazakhstan um, through an organization called American Music Abroad, which is actually a State Department organization, um, and they audition uh, musicians every year. And if you get accepted, they take you on tour to a number of different countries that they choose. And they have you kind of showcase your American music to an audience that maybe doesn't normally get to hear that kind of music. Um, and then the other part of the program that's really neat is um, it allows the musicians to collaborate with musicians from those countries. And that's how we met Gollum, um, one of the people in Kazakhstan. Um, his name is Chaz Martin. Um, you might know Chaz, is that I, right? I know Chaz very well. He and I trained in the same village in Rahat in Kazakhstan almost 13, 14 years ago now. That's awesome. So Chaz <laughs> knew, um, knew of Gollum um, and thought that it would just be a good pairing or at least that we should meet. So Chaz hosted a dinner at his house um, that him and his wife uh, put together. He and sang karaoke, didn't he? He sang karaoke. Uh, eventually... See? <laughs> <laughs> You know, Chaz has this very important job title now in Kazakhstan, but you can't take the Kentucky boy out of Chaz Martin. It's never going to happen. Eventually, things did lead to karaoke. That is true. Yes. Um, but that's how we met Gollum. Gollum showed up with his guitar and um, played some songs for us, and it was just a great pairing. We we really fell in love with his voice and his songwriting, and he sings in um, Kazakh, mm -hmm. but um, he, he really has a... Um, adapted or adopted a western kind of sound a western pop sound with his kazakh language which is pretty unusual i think um he's kind of one of the first people to truly kind of hone in um like a weird indie rock slash kazakh kind of thing yeah and i'm, I'm gonna play the song for people on the podcast you gave me permission to do that which i appreciate but yeah it's a it's a unique sound it's the, the way even just I, even if it didn't have the cello accompaniment his voice is is something you know unique to both Kazakh standards and pop standards, really. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's kind of like um, like a Kazakh Tom York or something like that. <laughs> now, the, the title of that piece is Akben Berge. Did, he, did you guys go into sort of the meaning of, of the lyrics at all with him, or did he um, sort yeah, of Yeah, a, a little bit. The, the literal translation means in white, um, and basically it's, it's sort of about finding hope, and I kind of think about it as in, in the light, in mm -hmm. light, or finding light. Um, and actually, somebody from the consulate, I think, came up with the full translation of all the lyrics, which wow. are in the um, YouTube uh, like information tab on yeah. the video. So if anybody's interested in checking that out, um, there's a full translation there. And the, the Kazakh language, to me, it's... It it is obviously it's not one that a lot of people in the United States are likely to hear. 
it's got a very, I don't want to say guttural sound, because again, that sounds pejorative, but it's got a lot of hard sounds, the kh and the kh sounds that, that you just don't get in, you know, standard English language. How does that factor into writing music to, you know, to fit some of those sounds? Oh, yeah. Well, I think for us, um, the piece that um, we played with Gollum was actually a piece that he had already composed um, and actually arranged for like electronic sounds. Wow. And we heard that piece and sort of just created our own little arrangement for him. Um, so it's very different than his original um, Achmanberg, which is uh, really popular in Kazakhstan. Mm -hmm. Gollum is a, uh, it, it's pretty amazing to see like we'll go somewhere with Gollum and people will recognize him. Um, but anyway, we sort of arranged it for cellos and created an acoustic version of his otherwise electronic kind of piece. Cool. And uh, you toured a little bit of Kazakhstan, as you said. What cities did you hit? What did you... Uh... Yeah, we did. We went um, to Almaty, um, and we were also in Astana, and um, we were in Shemkent, which um, is really funny because they call Shemkent the Texas of Kazakhstan <laughs> because it's in the south, and I guess people are, I don't know, like people drive crazy there. So I don't know what it was, but... Like, I, I'm from Texas. I live in Austin, and that's where I'm at right now. Okay. Um, but I remember being on stage and saying, oh, Shem Kent, I hear you're just like Texas. I'm from Texas. And people just went crazy. <laughs> like, they associate that city as the Texas of Kazakhstan, which is pretty funny. I'm, I'm assuming that's somehow Chaz is doing. I don't know how, but I, I think we'll, we'll, we'll do it. I don't know. It, it, it was pretty funny. Um, and, you know, another thing that was really kind of interesting is um, I, from time to time, watch uh, boxing. Mm -hmm. And there's a very popular boxer from Kazakhstan named Gennady Golovkin. They call him Triple G. And um, I would sometimes mention him in interviews. I would say, oh, by the way, I know Triple G. And he is a huge star in oh, Kazakhstan. Yeah. And the whole music interview would just turn into a boxing interview. Like they just <laughs> wanted to talk about Triple G, uh, which I thought was really cool. He's like a big celebrity in Kazakhstan. Yeah, when I was first over there in 2002, um, the biggest bootleg videotapes you would find everywhere were of UFC matches and boxing matches. Right. I mean, they were in every bazaar, every market, every magazine. You could find all of these, you know, of, of any box. They just couldn't get enough of it. And you would see it on TV every night. You know, 10-year-old matches didn't matter. <laughs> they just were absolutely intoxicated with that sport. I, frankly, I think, like, UFC stuff and MMA stuff was popular there before it was popular over here. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it is really popular. And, and Triple G now has gone on to become famous here in the U.S. So now he's like just a total celebrity in Kazakhstan <laughs> because he sort of made it, you know, in this U.S. market, which is kind of really tough to do, especially, um, you know, being from Kazakhstan. Sure. Sometimes there's a, you know, there's a language barrier, whatever the case is, but he's he's found a way to kind of establish a name for himself. Well, that's cool. It's, you know, it's kind of, like I said, it's, it's kind of been neat to see and talking with different people this last week, putting the show together, how Kazakhstan has connections for people, you know, Shimkent in Texas, who would have thought, you <laughs> right. know, and all the you know, boxing and it just, it's, it's just kind of neat to see all these things together. Now back to your group a little bit. Again, I got to ask why cello rock? What, where, well, where did that one come from? Well, we all met, um, at a classical music school in Rochester, New York called Eastman School of Music. And um, basically, you do classical music stuff all day long. And that's great, but we love other kinds of music, too. 
So um, I think the the few rockers at Eastman kind of gravitated towards each other. <laughs> um, and Patrick, one of the guys that um, started the band with me, were, were the two original members that are still playing in the band. Um, he, I think, just grabbed a couple of stand partners from his cello section and asked them if they could just read some charts that he was um, composing and arranging. And eventually I hopped on board to play drums. But to answer your question, the cello is really versatile. I think um, it can play really beautiful melodic sounds. It can be very guttural and kind of raw. And its range, you know, is is very um, is very big. You can go from low to high really well. I think it would probably probably be tougher to have like an all violin band just because you would miss that whole <laughs> mid and low frequency. But with the cello, you can kind of cover all the different um, frequency spectrums. You guys just posted not too long ago a, a Weezer cover. Yeah, we did. We actually posted it um, last Thursday. And right now on Facebook, it almost has a million views, which is crazy. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, it is. It's awesome. But we love Weezer, and we're all kind of um, like 90s kids. So that I think doing that cover meant, meant a lot to us. It was a little nostalgic, and I guess for other people, too. Yeah, it's yeah. Clearly, I mean, I'm I'm a huge Weezer fan. Back from uh, the Buddy Holly song they did, the old Happy Days video too. That was right. where I first found them. I was like, oh, these guys have some character. And, yeah. And yeah, you guys do. You guys do a kick-ass cover of it. And it's, you know, when when you hear the phrase "kick-ass cello," it's not something <laughs> people immediately do. Yeah, like, but, oh, but, but, you're right. Yeah, but you're I right. but I do urge my listeners to check it out. Uh, to check you guys out. Break of reality. Are you guys uh, on the road anywhere time anytime soon? Well, we're we're gonna we're gonna hit the road in early summer. We're heading to um, Portland, Fallon, Nevada. We're doing Berkeley, California, and those dates are in May. Um, so people can check those out. We have a, a full calendar on our website. Um, and actually, Kevin, we're, it looks like we might go back to Kazakhstan this year. That would be cool for an event in Almaty. Um, we're still trying to work out the details, but um, Chaz is actually trying to put this whole thing together as he does with with so much there. as he does yeah he's trying to get a, a group of peace corps volunteers back together i think in august yeah it might be the same thing it, it so. could, could very well be well I'm, I'm trying to make it there but budget and logistics of going to kazakhstan are, are a challenge as i'm sure you know yep. <laughs> even with embassy support it's still uh something like a 30-hour flight in terms yeah. of layovers and everything right. else and yeah big big fun <laughs> <laughs> so, but people can find you on YouTube. People can find you on your website, uh, breakofreality.com, and I would suggest that they do that. Uh, I thank you so much for taking a couple minutes to chat with me. But yeah, hopefully, if you guys do make it to California, let me know. Absolutely, I, I, I will yeah. come and hear you live. If you make it to Kazakhstan, let me know because I got friends over there too. So, <laughs> sounds great, Kevin. I appreciate you having me on. Okay? Well, thank you so much. You have a good afternoon. Okay, cheers. All right, forgive me as I slip into my DJ voice, but wasting no time, let's hear Galim Maldanazar and Break of Reality with their single, Ekpenberge.
Saulesa, talas dinte sa tarata, kiudem jabare, kanam jarab salte, sizentem tolaboyta, shanam tata etke, umer akben kurke. enjoyed that song i did i have it on regular rotation on, on my playlist at home um last up today is something i'm doing frankly just just for me and like i said i wanted to share some of my peace corps experiences with you guys it's not like any other job i've ever held it's not likely to be like any other job i i will ever hold uh there are lots of memories that are very special um lots of memories that are very private uh but I did, while I was in the Peace Corps, uh, maintain a journal um, and published it online as a blog for many years uh, and also edited it and edited it and edited a lot and released it as, as a book. Uh, it's called A Year in the Life. 
if you go to my uh, happy little bookmobile page that Craig talks about at, at the end of every show, uh, it's lulu.com slash M-A-R-O-U-S-E-K, you can order the book and find out in probably excruciating detail more than you would ever want to know about Kazakhstan, about being in the Peace Corps, about me being in the Peace Corps in Kazakhstan. Um, there are stories that I tell, you know, among friends. There are stories that I tell among family that, that always tend to get uh, a rise out of people, get people interested, not necessarily in the concept of what the Peace Corps is, but just in what it was like to be over there and some of the bizarre experiences that we had. So I'm actually going to read to you uh, just a little segment from, from my book, A Year in the Life, about a particular incident, a particular evening that occurred. I swear to you it's true. I absolutely swear to you it's true. So here we go. <laughs> As I type, three parts of my body ache. Being shot will do that to three parts of the body. There may be more than three parts of my body in pain, but the three parts in question seem to be occupying all the pain receptors in my body at this moment. It began when Andy, our newest regional Peace Corps volunteer, and I met Sue and her boyfriend Sergei for dinner. Andy, bless his heart, was one of those goofballs who studied Russian for years in college. When he graduated, he realized there wasn't a heck of a lot he could do with his knowledge. It eventually led him to the Peace Corps. As a Kazakhstani of Ukrainian ancestry, think blonde and blue-eyed, Sergei speaks very little English. Sue, who loves men who are blonde and blue-eyed, speaks only enough Russian to let Sergei know it is, well, time to be her boyfriend. Okay, that's not exactly true, but her Russian skills are limited. Still, and as always, every one of my little party spoke Russian better than I do, is my point. Andy had been living at his site, Bayanaul, for about three weeks. Bayanaul is known throughout the region for its beautiful forests, mountains, and lakes. It's nothing short of an oasis surrounded by miles of desert flatland, proving once again that God has a sense of humor. Bayanaul's only downside is the total lack of modern living. Andy lives in a home with no running water, and much to his extreme disappointment, Andy has to use an outhouse in the middle of winter. All he was looking for in Pavlodar was a toilet and a beer. He found more than that. I'm probably going to do a lot of foreshadowing, because there is a lot to foreshadow. After dinner and a few beers, it was decided that more beers were what was needed. Sue and Sergei had wandered the ice city a few nights earlier and become fascinated by the boat docked in the frozen Irtish River. I remembered seeing it several times, but never thought to explore it. It turned out to be a bar. It turned out to be much more than a bar, but, again, getting ahead of myself. The boat is difficult to describe. I suppose I could say it is the modern equivalent of a Mississippi riverboat, but there was nothing modern about the vessel we ultimately boarded. However, since I don't want to get bogged down with a lot of irrelevant details, the mental picture of a Mississippi riverboat will suffice. Except the riverboat had a front door. A side door, actually, the starboard side, to be specific. Carved in the middle of the hull of the boat was a sort of archway. Inside the middle of the arch was a door, more like a bulkhead than a door, but again, the details are not of consequence, except it was locked when we tried to open it. Oh, well, we tried, someone should have said. Yep, let's go someplace else, someone should have responded. We knocked on the bulkhead. Several seconds later, a woman opened it and stared at us for a good long time. Finally, she gave us a look I took to mean, yeah, I guess you'll do, and we all boarded. I could not for the life of me comprehend why a waitress would eye for potential customers with such a skeptical gaze. We were led down to the bowels of the ship, which had been decorated to resemble the Pirate's Cove from the TV series The Love Boat. There was dark wood paneling everywhere, a giant captain's wheel, and enough cigarette smoke to choke a chicken. But there was also a disco ball. Four booths lined the port and starboard sides of the ship. 
Separating each booth was a mock cannon. Like I said, not exactly like a Mississippi riverboat. While the room was full of people, we were the only customers. There were at least a dozen folks crowded around a booth, drinking and carrying on, and drinking after they got tired of carrying on, then carrying on some more until more drinks arrived. There was something about them that made me feel uneasy. They simply were not simply customers. I looked at the others in my booth. They felt the same. We had ordered beers before surveying the scene. They arrived with due speed. We'll just drink this one beer and get going while the getting is good, one of us should have said. Before one of us could say such a sensible thing, a rather large man dressed in black crossed from his booth to ours. In his hands, he carried shot glasses and a bottle of cognac. Without saying a word, he poured us each a shot. I confess that I have been in a lot of bars in America. From my experience, such things do not happen. In all my years of drinking, I've never heard a man say, And another round for everyone, on me. Maybe I've been in the wrong bars, or maybe I've been to the right bars. Whichever, I've never been trained on how to deal with a large foreign man in black giving large quantities of liquor to a table full of strangers, including myself. Nobody else at my table seemed to know how to react either. I surmised that drinking would meet with the man in black's approval. We did. It did. Last night I knew one shot was my limit. The man in black, however, knew no such thing. It was his birthday, we would come to learn, and we were uninvited but welcome guests at his private party. Seated around the man in black's booth were his friends and several women. Included amongst his friends was another man named Sergei, the owner of the boat, along with Sergei's wife, daughter, and daughter's best friend. I will not pretend that Sergei's daughter wasn't cute. Sue, Andy, and I all agreed it is impossible to distinguish ages in this country. People are either old or young. We were young. Sergei's daughter and her best friend were also young. They were also dancing with each other in a way I had only seen before on Showtime late at night. The gang at the table opposite ours nodded approvingly. Speaking of gangs, a few things were crystallizing in what I shall call, for the sake of argument, my mind. This was more than a private party we had crashed. It was more than a boatload of boat employees blowing off a little steam. The jailhouse tattoos on everybody's hands and arms, combined with bulges under the coats of the men, were two big clues. This was more than a riverboat. This was a mafia riverboat. It would be easy to assume the bit about the men in the boat being members of the mafia was all in my head. It wasn't. The reason I know it wasn't was because everyone else on my table, Sergei included, surmised the same thing. We were in a room filled with men who were not to be trifled with, and their women. I'll dispense with the dancing girls in a moment because they were nothing compared to what was to come. I made mention of the shortage of men in this country several times. I have delighted in making mention of it. When one goes to a place where dancing occurs in Kazakhstan, the place is usually filled with women. If the women are lucky, a few men sputter their way to the dance floor. In a disco or club, the female-to-male ratio is something like 10 to 1. Most of the guys who go dancing are dragged there by their girlfriends. This leaves very few men available for women to, well, get jiggy with. Women, clever creatures that they are, improvise. In short, they dance with each other. In America, to see a club full of women feeling each other up, rubbing against each other, fiddling with bits of each other's anatomy, any casual observer would conclude the women in question were lesbians. Here, one cannot make that distinction. Women dance with each other because there's no men to dance with. Andy and I had no interest in dancing with daughters of men in the mafia. Okay, that ain't true, but neither of us were stupid enough to even consider it. We were content to let them wiggle and shimmy around us. Okay, that ain't true either, but no good could possibly come from doing anything more than watch, so watch was all we did. At least that's all I did. Andy is a grown man who can make up his own mind, as am I. We differed in our approaches to the evening's antics. To his credit, Andy only danced with the Mafia man's daughter's best friend, not the daughter herself. Or maybe that's not to his credit, but it is what happened. During a dance break, something else happened. The man in black, boat owner Sergei, and a woman named Julie approached our table. Sergei wanted to know if we liked a certain game. 
The first time he said it, Sue, Andy, our Sergey, and I all heard him say pinball. Sure, we replied. Fun game. I'd never seen pinball machines in Kazakhstan. We sure didn't see them in the room on the boat. Sergey then mimed something rather disturbing. Granted, anything involving a mime is rather disturbing, but the action being mimed was that of a man firing a large gun. Does not compute, my brain told me. Pinball? I asked out loud for clarification. He said what he'd said earlier a second time. Things were clarified. Paintball. Between Sergei's slurred speech and our soaked brains, we all heard pinball and nodded our heads, signifying our interest. By the time the minor error was corrected, it was too late. We had agreed to let the Mafia shoot at us, and us at them. It was the man in black, the man in black's son, boat owner Sergei and Julie, against Sue, Andy, our Sergei, and myself. We were outfitted in white, quote-unquote, combat gear, face masks, and weapons. The weapons were two-handled, semi-automatic paint guns. Ours were semi-automatic anyway. The Mafia's weapons were fully automatic. It came down to this. We were trapped in the bottom of a boat with a bunch of intoxicated mob guys. These mob guys were looking for something to shoot. It was, after all, somebody's birthday. In hindsight, the woman who opened the bulkhead and let us in saw us as targets. It was well after midnight before we went outside. We all walked down the river and into a darker section of beach south of the boat. Six armed men and two armed women in a city of 300,000 people, and not one cop was summoned to the scene. Our weapons loaded with paintballs. Team Mafia's weapons were given twice as many as Team USA. The game was afoot. Team USA had devised what we all agreed was an ingenious plan. We were going to let Team Mafia beat us. Ever the geek, I dubbed it Operation Let the Wookie Win. Since the members of Team Mafia carried not only paintball guns, but real guns as well, it seemed the surest chance of survival. Sue and our Sergei fell back and retreated almost immediately. Though they later denied this, they actually started shooting at Andy and I. Our paintballs were blue, the Mafias were pink, I took a blue hit to my right thigh, Andy and I scurried through the snowdrifts and sought cover behind a batch of trees. We fired at a few moving blobs of white. The blobs of white fired back. I took a rather nasty hit on one of my hands, the only exposed area of my body. Andy took a hit on his face mask, the paintball splattering and dripping through the mask into his mouth. Team Mafia was not new to the game. Andy and I fired until we had nothing left to fire, then promptly raised our weapons in the air and surrendered. Sue and her boyfriend, Sergei, had already retreated back into the boat. Here was what happened next. The members of the Mafia sought to teach the Americans a little lesson in morality. Leaving wasn't an option for us. We were told that this should be how wars are fought around the world. Two sides arm each other, they fight, then, differences settled, they sit together and drink. They neglected to mention that they had extra ammo and better guns, but I couldn't help but be moved by what these drunken psychos were trying to say. At one point, one of the men introduced himself as a Chechnyan. He then grabbed the hand of the man in black and shook it proudly. That's how it's done, the Russian and Chechnyan buddies were trying to tell us. The floor show continued. Scanning the room with my good eye, I easily spotted someone else in the room who stood out like a sore thumb. Actually, she stood out like a hooker in a bar, which it turned out was exactly what she was. The Mafia men hired her for, and this was the word they used, ambiance. She was dressed in go-go boots and a two-piece outfit that exposed her midriff, cleavage, and, well, most everything else, depending on how she contorted her body. She paid us Americans little mind, since we paid her no money. The other women, obviously the wives and girlfriends of the Mafia men, were not at all pleased with the ambiance. The women saw fit to use their men's hooker to embarrass their men. The most glaring example was the strip tease that took place, repeatedly, featuring the hooker and the man in black. Every time, without fail, the hooker would draw the man in black to the dance floor, taunting him by loosening the drawstring holding up her skirt, or sliding one of the straps that held her top off her shoulder. Because the other women in the room had conspired against the men, that was as much clothing as the hooker ever removed. Unfortunately, she would work the man in black into such a frenzy that he would take off most of his clothes. 
Underneath his outfit, the man in black was a rather rotund, flabby individual. He was a sort of a Russian Buddha. His near-nakedness was met with several hoots and hollers from the women and several boos from the men. It was nearly two o'clock in the morning when we made our discreet exit, or it would have been discreet, except all the women but the hooker chose to leave when we did. It made for an awkward farewell, particularly when the hooker approached Andy and I and gave us her business card. Her usual hangout, her corner or side of the street, if you will, is the restaurant across the street from my house. <laughs> I gave the card she gave me to Sue's boyfriend. Andy came to Pavlodar in search of a beer and a toilet. Turned out he got a little more than that. Now, I don't know too many Peace Corps volunteers that have a story about getting in a shootout against the Russian Mafia, but I wanted to share that story with you guys because, you know what, you never know what uh, what to expect as a Peace Corps volunteer. It's It's fun, it's challenging, it's really, really challenging at times. Um, you're working with other cultures and you're working in environments that you expect things to, to be a certain way and they just aren't that way. A couple years back, the Peace Corps pulled out of Kazakhstan and you heard me talk a little bit about that with the Peace Corps director. Even though Kazakhstan does have modern cities and a lot of Western conveniences, they still need some help and America's in a position to help them. Uh, Kazakhstan is a friendly Muslim nation, and we're in a political and social climate where those aren't easy to come by for Americans right now. Kazakhstan is an opportunity for America. It's an opportunity for the world to see what moderate, intelligent, compassionate Muslim people are like. But we pulled out of, of Kazakhstan. The Peace Corps is not there anymore. The uh, NGOs and other nonprofits were all pulled out of there a couple years ago as well. They're fairly isolated right now, and they're kind of being dangled on a hook by, well, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. And I won't get into the politics of why I think Putin is a prick, but he is, and yeah, that's what we're dealing with now. So, in conclusion, <laughs> I want to thank everybody for listening, but understand that this is you know, not meant to be the beginning or the end of a conversation. It's just a part of the conversation. And I hope that you'll have uh, additional conversations, not just with me or with, with you know the Peace Corps or with Tony or, or Jeff or anybody else that I've spoken to here this week, but do some research and find out about the world around you. The Peace Corps is a great way to learn about places and people and things that you would never be exposed to just living a life in America. And it's worth it. Uh, as you hear politicians... And again, I don't want to get political, but as you hear politicians talk about uh, locking down our borders and denying certain people entry and making people who believe a certain thing not be allowed into our country, or worse, American citizens who believe a certain thing have to leave the country, these people have not lived the life of a Peace Corps volunteer, is all I can tell you. They just haven't. And I'm not saying that as a pat on the back to myself. I'm saying that because no Peace Corps volunteer can experience life overseas in a developing nation, get to know people, in many cases fall in love with those people, befriend those people, work alongside those people, serve those people and be served, and come out of it thinking of them as an enemy. They're not an enemy. All right, we're, we're a world that could be at peace right now. That's all I gotta say. So until next time get off my lawn this has been the get off my lawn podcast brought to you by kevin's bookmobile check out www.lulu.com slash for a selection of books authored by your genial host buy a paperback 
download an ebook and help support the podcast. That's www.lulu.com slash M-A-R-O-U-S-E-K. And by our tip jar. Like what you've been hearing on the show so far? Want to hear more? Then help us out by going to getoffmylawnpod.blogspot.com, clicking on the tip jar, and donating to the cause of creativity. No amount too large, no amount too small. That's getoffmylawnpod.blogspot.com. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Get Off My Lawn Pod. Check out our SoundCloud at Get Off My Lawn Podcast, or subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest episodes. Questions or comments, or to suggest a guest, our email address is getoffmylawnpod at gmail.com. The theme was written and composed by Brian Weideman. Check out his music at www.worldbride.com. That's W-O-R-L-D-B-R-I.com. The logo was designed by Julie Contreras at Urban Bird Design. Go to urbanbirddesign.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend.